Hey guys, and welcome to the Family Business Indaba podcast. We are the voice of African family business, promoting generational wealth and generational legacies. And my name is Susan Tendi. And I am Nika Amani. And we're going to be taking you through the journey of African family business. Good afternoon, everyone, or good morning in some places. I'm so happy that you could join us. Welcome. Thank you so much for a very, very interesting and enlightening, um, you know, summary of, um, as you say, almost 600-page PhD that's going in tomorrow or Monday. So uh, well done. Um, I find it a fascinating topic to listen to uh, values and how it's entrenched and transmitted. So you can relax a little bit. Uh, I'm sure you're the expert amongst the panel. Um, but I also want to introduce our other two panelists. And that is, I think by now you know her very, very well, is uh, Mrs. Mutendi Titi, who is also the co-host and the co-presenters of this conference from the African Family Firms. Uh, Titi, very nice that you can also join us because you also made reference to values um, during your keynote presentation on Monday. And then Professor Shelley Farrington, who is the main supervisor, and I would like to say the main uh, slave driver of uh, Welcome. I've learned a lot from you and I've learned a lot from Welcome on, on values and, and it's really a privilege for me to also be involved in your study. So if we can kick off with the, with the first question. Um, I think it's becoming sort of a well-known fact that, um, you know, many families are increasingly multi-geographical and multicultural. So what do you think are the implications then for, for them in terms of being more multi-geographical and multicultural? And I think to give you a little bit of a break, welcome. Um, perhaps, Siti, can I start with you? What do you think are the implications then for, for families and for, for their businesses? I think the implications are across quite a, a number of areas. Um, in terms of the growth of the family, it makes um, the, the wealth get spread a bit more in terms of there's opportunities globally that the family can explore as they get placed in different ge- geographies. And when you look at that, it also screams to the fact that they, the family is identifying global opportunities and they're seeing global expansion um, growth, which is, which is good for them financially. What it does do is puts a lot more pressure in terms of tightening up their governance, as well as tightening up communication and connectivity among family members. Um, I'm sure when you start looking at the multiple generations and even when you're looking at a founder generation family um, where you have parents and children and the children then go to different geographic locales, you already see that there's that strain in communication as well as in coordination because now in these different geographic locales, there's also adoption of different cultures different ways of life and all that then gets permeated into the family and it's it's very important to then try to keep the family's values at the center and at the core of all the discussions that the family has and to reference to them as well as to cultivate 
that storytelling that um, everybody keeps talking about where we remind the family of our history and we get them to tie back to understanding why we started the family business or why the family itself is in existence because with with some family members you'll find that they decide not to become a part of the family business but that doesn't make them no longer part of the family and understanding the history of the family as well as aligning with the history of the family keeps that th- that family together and at the end of the day i think that's what's really important and that's why this is one of the successful anchors of family business the fact that they have that connectivity and that sharedness that other businesses probably do not have and cannot create is what makes them really at the core and center so although they're global although there's that um essence of we are in different places in the world we we should encourage the use of also technology as we've seen through zoom and the global pandemic and the different platforms social media we should continue to encourage that within the family to then create that in, in, in that embeddedness that togetherness that coming together aligning and promoting family thank you so much and welcome um uh, can i latch on to what titi just said uh how important did you find storytelling in your in your doctoral studies uh and also as a means to transmit values and deal with this multicultural multifaceted nature and then also like titi mem- uh, um just mentioned how important was social media? Um, I know it's very important for for the old for the younger generation. But how did you find that? Is was that also an issue uh, and uh, and a new means of transmitting values? Okay, thank you, Prof. Uh, I think uh, the two parts in the question. The first one is um, relating to um, storytelling. Um, unfortunately, one of the founders. You know, passed away this this year on uh, on old uh, uh, you know man quite talkative when I had engagement with him and the the children or actually it's the third generation now it's the grandchildren kept on referring to the stories that our grandfather told us the stories that our grandfather told us or he told us this uh, there's a story about this and. These things happened way before these grandchildren were actually born. This is in the 1970s. And uh, because they were told those stories, they actually, um, they, they, they actually embrace those stories and they keep them alive uh, in the sense that they don't want the history that they've been told by their grandfather to die or to just go away, to fade away. And I think storytelling becomes a very important tool, uh, amongst others, that can be used, particularly by the older generation. And I think it's because it's it's older generation because, firstly, they've got more wisdom, they're more wiser uh, by their age and experience and how they've lived their life. But also they're they also wiser because they started these businesses. So they've got many things to share. And them using storytelling i think it it instills or transmit helps transmit certain values to the next generation um the second part of the question is on the social media uh the unfortunate part is the old businesses that are run by older generation 
seem not to embrace the social media aspect, though they might be good in terms of storytelling and all that. I think it's because of where they come from. They come from an era where there is no social media. So I understand. But those businesses that are run by young generation, they embrace social media. Uh, one of the business, Kakisho Investment, which is in e-commerce logistics, they actually embracing this social media like in and out. They are on Twitter, on Facebook. Um, they they also have got websites. They actually have an, a courier company and a delivery app that they are using. It's like they also have an online store. So that's how much they embrace this technology thing. I think it depends uh, with the with the generation that is running the business, uh, the extent to which they're going to embrace social media. But does it does social media help transmit values? I think it does. However, there are challenges uh, comes with that. I think in the study we also highlight that one from as far as I remember, uh, Cabello highlighting that you know there are also dangers with social media because of your interacting with people that sometimes you don't know and. There's a risk, you know, you know, your privacy being uh, sometimes uh, not so private. <laughs> you know, it's it's, it's tempted in and upon. So it's it, there are those other, also other challenges. But generally, I think it's 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 acceptable to say that they actually influence values transmission. Uh, Prof. Farrington, can I ask you what type of theories did you consider for grounding the literature? Um, because you were very involved in that. Um, and why did you choose specific theories? Um, I, I'm not putting you on the spot. And then I also want to ask the same question to you that I asked, welcome. What was sort of the most surprising finding? Uh, I know there was a lot, but what, what struck you? What was interesting to you in, in general when you, when you read the findings? Just unmute yourself. Thank you. Um, you know, I can recall reading those first chapters well, what, six years ago, and I, I had very little knowledge of um, the field of values. I mean, values you would mostly find in the field of psychology uh, or within that discipline. And, and I can remember reading those first chapters and a lot of the words I didn't even understand. I didn't even know what they meant. And over the last five years, reading on the topic, you become more and more familiar. And I think if anything, you know, looking back, back I realize how um, all of us stepped into to something that we, we knew very little about. And I think that's maybe the reason why initially we didn't know what theories to use or how they fitted in. And I mean, the whole process has been quite a, a developmental process for all of us. Uh, you and I have relatively inexperienced at qualitative research, and we've learned so much. And I think the most important thing I've realized is how important a theory is to provide structure to a study. Um, you know, everyone before always said, what's your theory? What's your theory? It's the lens. And I, I don't think I have really have seen it come to fruition or be so useful as I have now seen it within the context of welcome study. And I can remember he finished basically done most of the chapters and then it started coming back. And when I started looking at some of his results, it was then sort of that the penny dropped that something's missing here. You know, we're getting the results, but this, these, the words and these concepts are becoming familiar. And that's when I sent welcome back to start looking, okay, well, what, what is underlying 
all this, these results that you're coming with. And then more and more, we, we began to see how almost working backwards, I hate to say that, but we began to see how uh, apt and appropriate a theory was. And because we were looking at the context of indigenous, we immediately started looking at um, cultural differences and cultural theories and values, of course, fits within that discipline or that realm. And that's, and also with the whole transmission and the words entrenchment was began to be so obvious that was around the theories of socialization and, um, and institutional theory. And once we started saying, okay, well, let's look at socialization, then we began to see, oh, we were talking about parents and grandparents and siblings that fits with socialization agents. And you begin to see how all the concepts that have been coming out of the literature actually fitted perfectly into a um, into a theory. And the same with institutionalization. And we spoke about entrenchment, but once you actually look at institutionalization theory, we began to see how those concepts were actually had proper names within a theory. And I think, you know, I think for me, probably the, I wouldn't say any of the findings were like, if you look at the conceptual model and if you look at the final model, they're not too different. What was just stood out, um, I think that was the most surprising for me is in essence how our data so nicely fitted within existing theories. Now, if you look at the conceptual model, it was prepared based on a structure and theories and how the end result actually fitted in there so perfectly. Um, obviously, the, there were slight differences in terms of where what was more influential um, with regards to your socialization mechanisms or with regards to your um, transmission factors or and how it was entrenched. And that's obviously where the indigenous knowledge component comes from. So, um, yeah, I think for me, it was just, um, I wouldn't say there was anything, whoa, like completely surprising. If anything, it was, I'm so surprised and pleased as to how the data in actual fact was so supported by the underlying theories. Thank you. You have really done a great job, um, you know, guiding Welcome there. So I want to pose a question to first to you, Welcome, and then to Titi. We have now heard this morning um, and the previous two days a lot about how diverse the, the values are, um, you know, of the different generations. Um, now, where do you start finding commonalities between the generations when you want to entrench and transmit the value? So, Welcome. If we can start with you, you know, it's it's so important, but, you know, how do we grapple with these multiple values from different generations? Uh, I was actually hoping you start with me. <laughs> um, I think, as uh, we highlighted again in the study, uh, uh, there's a bit of a difference in terms of a slight difference. And I think that's also requires more research on that. Uh, the values that are held by the senior generation and the older generation, yes, they are similar, but to a certain extent, there is a bit of a difference. The younger generation uh, now tend to embrace certain other values that are not, you know, uh, that are not, that are not, uh, uh, you know, that are not taught by the families or their senior senior members, etc. I think that is not necessarily bad. I think. As I understand values now, or maybe culture in part, things do change. Values are not the same. Uh, culture is not always the same. 
even the issue of Ubuntu, I think we need to question it a little bit more. How is it, trans how is it transformed from the original understanding of what Ubuntu was then, maybe 40 years ago, to what it is and what it can be in the future? I think it's not a bad thing because as we see in the study, uh, there are many factors that influence those values. Some of them, it could be more, yes, it's in parents, it's internal, it's families, but also external factors uh, or external, you know, socialization uh, agents. And those do bring in different value sets than those that are being taught in the family. And I think for the families, the grappling, yes, for the older, older generation, they could be struggling with uh, why are their values different from the younger generation. But I think what they should be asking is how can they ensure that the values that are being uh, learned by the next generation actually good and work for them? How can they make them work? And I think that's a question that, you know, maybe for future studies and all that, but also to add, younger generations seem to like things that are more fast, more aligned to technology. Um, I remember one of the participants, they're having, one of the families, they're having a problem with the aunt. Uh, the aunt is now the custodian of the family business, second generation. The, the, daughter, the daughter is now third generation. And there seem to be some differences. The aunt has got her own way sticking to what the father, her father taught her, but the granddaughter now seems to want to do something different. Uh, and they've got those problems. And that's what led to the cancellation of one of the interviews in 2019, because this one wants this study to be undertaken, is excited about it, you know, see the value of it. And once things that are trending, but the aunt doesn't really see it that way. And I think, as I said, there needs to be an understanding of uh, maybe reinforcement or maybe uh, ensuring that the values that the younger generation uphold, actually, they are made to work, uh, especially if you want to take the business in the future. Thank you, Almari. An interesting question. When I look at it um, and also agreeing with a lot of what Welcome was saying is um, when you look at a family's values, those come from the history of the family. They come from the experiences that the family has had. And they come from what the family believe aligns with what they feel is right. And with every generation, your experiences are different as well as your perception is, is different. Because what you're facing in that generation might be completely different from what another generation is, is facing. Um, I'll give um, an example from the African context. Um, Africa has had a very turbulent past and we know that we've, we've gone through so many different eras and with each era you have had different generations who had different perceptions of what they needed to do to survive as well as what they needed to do to make sure that their families and their businesses thrive in the situations that they were in. However, as time has changed, situations has changed, you find that values also must change because what we believed to be true sometimes is not the truth. And what we thought would be helpful for the family or for the business might not align with what the current situation is. 
And so looking at relevance as we consider what our values truly are, as we consider what the generation is going through is very important for families because it's it's the growth of the family, it's the metamorphosis of the family. And with when you look at the family not as a stagnant, consistent, but as a, a growing tapestry where each generation is adding their own thread to the story and adding their own thread to the tapestry, you start realizing that there has to be some sort of shift that happens. And even with culture and the embeddedness of culture in our value systems, culture is defined as the way we do things around here. And when you look at the way we did things in the 1600s, 1700s, and 1800s, surely we cannot say we're doing the same things now. It means that change has happened. And with that change, there are some fundamental values that don't change. There are fundamental values that are based on what do we define ourselves as a family? What are the things that anchor us? Then there are some values that are adopted because at that point, they're they're the heyday in thing. And we think that by aligning with them, our family also becomes part of the trending set. And I think we've seen that amplified with now the use of social media where everybody wants to be what's going on on Instagram, but those are just photos. They don't, they don't capture the whole essence of what was happening. They capture what, what the person wants you to see. And as a family, when we look at different generations, we have to be able to understand that each generation is going through a completely different era, a completely different set of circumstances. And it's not about revising values, but then really taking a magnifying glass and looking at those values and seeing what each generation's perception of what those values are and what they mean to them in that current moment and how we can collaboratively ensure that we uphold that and pass on that thought system, that essence to the next generation. You are, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, our last question I want to pose and Professor Farrington, starting with you. Um, and then uh, Titi, and then welcome. We will give the last word as it is your topic mainly um, to you. Uh, we all have, uh, uh, Shelley, you, Titi, myself have small children or young children who are sitting in Generation X, Generation Z. And um, I think many family businesses globally, but also in the African context, grapple to retain talent amongst their own family members. Many children work overseas, study overseas. So how do we make sure as families, uh, you know, with uh, as Titi mentioned, they have different values as well. They live in a different era. How can we make sure that we get them interested or, um, you know, retain their talent in our own family business? It makes me think of my nephew. You know, my nephew, I can remember growing up, um, my brother has a business, which I was involved. Um, but my nephew growing up said he's never going to work at the at his father's business. And let me tell you, it's been two years, two, three years out of school. And where is he now? He's working in the father's business and he's, he's happily working in the father's business. And when I speak to him now, he says, no, this is not forever. But I can tell you, I would most likely be 10 years down the line and he'll be running that business. How do we convince them? I think one of the biggest influences is the storytelling and the positive stories. You know, I think there can be nothing worse for a, 
a child to be sitting at the dining table every night and hearing his parents happy stories about the family business or the hard work it is, that's going to be the first thing that's going to put them off. You know, so if you want your child to be in, involved in the family business, he needs to see that you're happy in the family business, that you're achieving your goals, that you um, are enjoying it, that you love it, that you have a passion for it. And through the stories that you tell and the example that you set, he's going to look at that and say, do I want that or not? So I think that's it's, it's what the, he sees in his parents that will convince him. Now, I agree with you 100%. I remember 15 years back when I finished my doctorate, I looked specifically at the willingness to, to take over the business. It was one component. And, you know, that positive marketing or on the other hand, the negative marketing, you know, the bitching and moaning about how badly it's going in the business definitely creates an unwillingness to, to take over. So I agree with you. Titi, um, can we hear from you and then um, welcome after that, if you can, if you can summarize and, and also answer that question, please. I'm going to try to give a quick example um, and also take from my in-laws because they have quite a very um, interesting uh, way of bringing the family together. So when you look at, um, at, at countries, let's look at the, the Olympics that we've just come from. We are all in different parts of the world and sometimes you're not in your home country. But when you look at when you watch the Olympics, you're out there when you see your country's flag being raised high or uh, your national anthem being played. We have um, this resonance, this um, feeling of allegiance, this feeling of commitment and feeling of belonging, which is one of the most important important things that families forget when we don't have traditions or ways that we do things or cultures or stories we then become individuals that are not part of a collective and every family member wants to feel like they're part of a collective and when we start embedding that in our family businesses and we start embedding that in our family way of life we are steadily and we are in, in a way, creating that need to want to be part of, that need to be patriotic to, that family members don't get elsewhere. And as human beings, we are social creatures. We gravitate to where we feel satisfaction. And if that's within the family business, it is because of the traditions we've created, the narratives that we've shared with family members, and the way we've set out the PR campaign to our internal customers, which are the family members. We seem think, to have temporarily lost Prof Farrington. So, Elmry, so welcome. Maybe you can just give us a closing remark. Thanks. Yes, I think to, to answer that question, I think uh, it's, it is precisely why hopefully we do this kind of research and uh, studies and these conferences. Um, my response to this, uh, got a lot to say, but just in brief, yes, storytelling, but I think the family is central to this whole thing of developing an interest amongst the next generation for them to be, uh, whether take over or to have an interest in the family business. If the family climate uh, or the family, if there's no family unit, if there's no uh, family communication, if the family is broken down, uh, it becomes much more difficult to convince the next generation to be part of the family business. Uh, in cases where they can go into the family business, regardless of the nature or the dynamics of the family, sometimes 
there isn't that unity even in that family business as well. And I remember one of the participants uh, saying, it has always been uh, my mother's thing. It, I don't see myself in it. Yes, I work in the business, but I don't see myself taking over from it because it has always been as, you know, happening. And the other thing is, uh, I always have a problem with my mother because of A, B, C, D. So this person referring to the challenges they personal, the challenges they have had in terms of the relationship they have with their parents. And I think the family becomes very important vehicle that we can use to drive not only values, but also the interest itself uh, that should be fostered amongst the next generation. And uh, yeah, so the families becomes important. But I think what we saw in the study, introducing the family business to the family, to the next generation at a younger age uh, develops in a way that affinity. To some, the tradition that is there is that uh, during holidays, children go and work in the family business. Uh, yes, they're given you know, monies or pocket money. And they look forward to those pocket monies because they know they're going to use it, you know, when school comes. And in a way, they're instilling or cultivating that culture of wanting to be in the family business. And obviously through storytelling uh, and other mechanisms, sharing positive news about the business, uh, the family itself, what the family stands for, what they tend to, 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 what they're trying to develop as a family, as a whole, becomes very important. Uh, I think in short, I'll just, you know, end there. Thank you so much. Welcome. Um, yeah. I'm not quite sure. There she is. Um, Professor Venter's back. Can you hear us, Professor Venter? Yes, thank you. I don't know. I was, uh, I vanished for, for a while. Thank you. I, I'm, uh, did you answer the, the question? Yes, welcome has just finished wrapping up for you. Excellent. Thank you. Welcome. I was depending on, on you. So sorry about that. Um, thank you very much for our three panelists. And um, I welcome you all back uh, at four o'clock this afternoon. This afternoon, our focus is going to change to more um, to governance and philanthropy. And Professor Fenter, I think you first up at four o'clock. So um, good luck for that as well. And um Thank you very much, Titi. Welcome, Shelley, um, for joining us on the panel. And uh, we're looking forward to four o'clock. Um, and I'm just reminding you about our faculty meeting at two. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. See you back, Paul. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. <laughs>